usually the fights were dirty and something that they did, but they didn't pull supporters into. It would just be the members dealing with it. With John, they pulled all of us in. We would come up with slander and strategy, and then we would get the supporters to act on it. We were sent there so that he felt intimidated. They will completely invade your life, lie, humiliate you, make it so that you can't work. I know because I watched them do it to John, and I participated. Had me and another move member go out and do surveillance. I organized protest outside of the Gilbrides neighborhood. If the missive insinuated it things like, you know, child molestation, I think the signs said it overtly with banners and signs making the same allegations, but this time even more vitriolic. That the Gilbride parents were sexual abusers of John Gilbride. They wanted us to watch him, watch his house, watch his movements. Or call John's work to get him fired from his job at the airline, pose as a reporter. I'd never seen anything like what they did with John Gilbride. That one was on a whole other level. Whatever they asked of us is what we did. John Gilbride and his family, and anyone else who has assisted his legal efforts, has been surveilled, stalked, harassed, and threatened by MOVE, members and supporters, on the orders of cult leader Alberta Africa, John's ex-wife. MOVE members and supporters of both MOVE and Mumia, which is one and the same, have crossed state lines, entered federal property, solicited funds electronically and internationally for Alberta's custody battle, and posted threatening missives online pressure him to back down from the custody case. There's a bunch of people around there that know that the leadership is fucking nuts. And they know that you're just going along because you don't really have a choice. Alberta and her move cult have never stopped escalating this battle against John, which is representative of the cult's entire 50-year history. They never give up and they never back down. They love confrontation, any sort of confrontation. As the confrontation around, you know, Gilbride intensified, the asks got weirder. This is move versus the courts. This is move versus the government. This is about way more than child custody and visitation. This is John versus move. It's war. There were daily meetings. If Alberta backs down, she will no longer be all-powerful and all-knowing to her move cult followers. This could empower others to attempt a coup or to leave move with their children. Authorities could then investigate child abuse and MOVE, and the financial reporting of the trust, and all of the donations that are coming in from MOVE and Mumia from inside the United States and from around the world. Money, and that's the key to this whole thing. All of this is about money. So there's a lot more at stake for Alberta and the MOVE cult than just John getting unsupervised visitation with Zach. There was always a faction of us in MOVE who were like, yo, we are crazy. There's no accountability whatsoever. And we talked about it among ourselves, but didn't dare say anything to anyone outside of those circles or those factions and sure didn't speak up to them. Flyers, statements to the press and group protests. MOVE has made it more than clear to authorities in both Philadelphia and New Jersey that MOVE will never let John see his son, Zachary. And if anyone tries to get Zachary away from Alberta or MOVE, then there will be a confrontation like 1978 or 1985. By preventing John from picking up Zach for the court-ordered visitation, and because she took Zach outside of New Jersey, Alberta is in contempt of court, which means a bench warrant could be issued for her arrest. But when Cherry Hill police don't intervene and instead suggest John leave town for the weekend of September 20th, when John returns three days later, he alerts the New Jersey family courts and a hearing is scheduled for October 4th. 
Nobody knew how crazy and brutal Bert was more than John. John is still going to work at U.S. Air, but he's not staying at his own apartment at Ryan's Run in Mapleshade. John is sleeping on the couch of a co-worker. I think John was afraid of them and what they may do. John clearly said to me, you know I can get killed for this. The MOVE organization had its first deadly confrontation with police in 1978 in the West Philadelphia residential neighborhood of Powelton Village. MOVE had its second and most deadly confrontation with police in 1985 on Osage Avenue in the West Philadelphia residential neighborhood of Cobbs Creek. Besides loss of life, both of those confrontations resulted in complete destruction of the property MOVE was calling its headquarters. A detail that is left out by MOVE so that it's not included in the telling of their history is that MOVE's strategy for existing and being in confrontation mode always involves having multiple properties in order to move people and things around as needed. Just like membership numbers, legal names, marriages, ages, and children, move houses are move business. No one outside of move knows how many move houses, where they're located, and who owns them. In 2002, move had at least five move houses in the Philadelphia area and two in the New Jersey suburbs. Alberta's house in Cherry Hill that she bought with John in the summer of 1998, and a small duplex in Pensacon, owned by a white, unmarried, middle-aged realtor named Gary Wonderland. One time when I was a teenager, Gary came and picked us up and took us over, me and my brother, over to his house. This is Whit Sims, and in 1994, when she was 17 and her brother Mike was 15, they were the pawns in a custody battle between move leader Alberta and their maternal grandmother, Laverne Sims. Your grandmother had legal custody of you at that time? Yeah, she had full legal custody of us. Their grandmother, Laverne Sims, had been appointed as their legal guardian after their parents, Debbie Sims and Michael Davis, both MOVE members, were convicted of murder in 1978, the first deadly MOVE confrontation in Powelton Village. Witt and Mike were put in and taken out of MOVE many different times by their grandmother, Laverne who herself was in and out of MOVE as a member. In 1994, Laverne and her sister Louise James are at war with Alberta for control of MOVE. As the biological siblings of Vincent Leapart, a.k.a. John Africa, reported to have died in the 1985 fire, Laverne and Louise believe they should be the leaders of MOVE and the recipients of any and all financial settlements for the 1985 wrongful death civil lawsuits. Millions of dollars are coming to MOVE. Vincent's former mate, Alberta, has taken control of MOVE, and therefore both imprisoned MOVE parents of Witt and Mike. So Alberta has taken them back into MOVE again in order to marry them off so that MOVE children can be created. Me especially. They got into a big argument. It was about me being pregnant. Alberta has forced Witt to MOVE marry another MOVE teenager, and Witt is now seven months pregnant. So they was like, we're going to send Gary to come get you because I think she's trying to kidnap you. Gary was very loyal. Wit is hidden from her legal guardian and grandmother Laverne for two months until she gives birth and then turns 18. Gary Wonderland and his house in Pensacola, New Jersey, were part of Alberta's plan. And Gary went along with it as the boyfriend of Sue Africa, a.k.a. Rhea. But most importantly, he went along with it because he himself has been a longtime MOVE member since 1978. Gary's activity was hiding you from your legal guardian. Yeah, Gary was very loyal and did whatever they told him. If you ask any MOVE members, they will say that Gary Wonderland is a supporter and always has been. But considering that Gary himself has claimed to have met Vincent Leapart, a.k.a. John Africa, 
and even says that John Africa was the one who gave him the activity to become a real estate agent. This definitely makes Gary a move member, but he's kept out of the public eye because he's white, but also so that he can be used to do underground activities, meaning not to be known to authorities. It was in 1992 when MOVE started their International Free Mumia Machine, aka the International Concerned Friends and Family in Mumia Abu Jamal, who we now know always was a secret MOVE member. By 1995, under the savvy leadership of MOVE member Pam Africa, the PR fundraising machine of Free Mumia is hooked up tightly with the international anti-death penalty movement, which is bringing in major press, major celebrities, major money, and young supporters from around the U.S., wanting to get involved with both Mumia and Move. Gary's house becomes a pro bono cult Airbnb to house out-of-town supporters for Mumia and Move. All of these supporters are the activity of white Move member and second-in-command Sue Levino, a.k.a. Sue Africa, a.k.a. Rhea, who reports directly to Move leader Alberta. After John Gilbride escapes Move in 1998 and is trying to get custody of his son, Zach, Alberta needs more full-time soldiers for her war against John. And she wants naive, young, white soldiers who will faithfully carry out underground activities. Tony and Lori Allen and Kevin Price relocate to the Philadelphia area to provide full-time support for Alberta's campaign against John. When I moved up in June of 2001, I was mostly staying in West Philly, but my official residence was Gary's house in Pensacola, and that's where my stuff was, and I stayed at the house at least a few nights a week. This is recent high school graduate, 18-year-old Kevin Price from Virginia. I remember when I moved in, Gary saying, my parents are nosy and they live up the street. Don't ever let them in my house. This would have been probably August of 2001. I was in the house without anyone else home. And I'd never seen Gary's parents before. And a woman knocks on the door and I answered the door. And without me having time to stop her, she just walked into the house, like past me and said, I'm Gary's mom. I'm going to clean up the house some. So she went straight for the vacuum cleaner and started tidying up. And the house was a mess. Papers stacked up everywhere and plates and all sorts of things. And he also was housing myself and a few other young activists who are not known for cleanliness. I'm just staying here and Gary told me not to let anyone in the house. I don't know what your relationship with your son is, but this is uncomfortable for me. But she was very insistent that she wanted to clean the house and check on things. And Gary had described before her coming into the house when he wasn't home and like looking through his mail and like trying to figure out what was going on in his life. A month later, Kevin's parents receive a letter in the mail from Gary's mother. And my parents had never met Gary at that point, which is also strange because I'm like living with this guy who's 30 years older than me. My mom actually notified me right away. I just got the weirdest letter from Gary's mom. It's just like, what is going on with this? And read the letter, which was essentially, I've noticed that your son is spending a lot of time with Gary and living in the house and that he's also around. I'm writing because I'm concerned for your son because essentially we lost Gary to move. We didn't understand what it was. We waited too long to act. And 
I strongly feel like you need to do get your son out of moves influenced by any means necessary or something like that. The, the boy's parents lived in Virginia and uh, just wanted to let them know that he had gotten involved with a cult and it was not a good thing. This is Gary's mother. He graduated high school in 1975, went away to college uh, for two years, became a chef, and then a friend told him uh, about the MOVE organization, and he went over and met them, and he was 20 years old. 20-year-old Gary Wonderland meets MOVE in the spring of 1978. I actually found a picture of him protesting for MOVE with a big sign, months before MOVE's first deadly confrontation with police that August. Gary had often had clippings of the newspaper, pictures and all in his, in his bedroom. He tried to hide them in a way, but I would see them, and he was writing to the ones in prison, and, and he would never talk about them. He just kept it going. He has wasted his life being, being involved with the move, because Gary cut himself off from his brother and his nieces. You know, we couldn't talk him out of it. Did you have conversations with him about your concerns? Oh, yes. Tell him he's wasting his time and get out. And, but that didn't do any good. Once he met them, he felt they needed him. And they made him feel needed. It is a, it's a secret life from us. They're simply a cult. For decades, MOVE is taking advantage of Gary's generous nature. They use his car get him to max out his credit cards. His house was a dump, and it was in a cheaper part of New Jersey to live, and he lived very poor. He was just a kind of strange guy, but never, like, obtuse or mean or never had an ugly word about anybody. He was just kind of Gary the Move groupie, specifically for Alberta and Rhea. In late August, early September of 2002, Alberta is at war with John Gilbride, and quite a few young white supporters are living at Gary's and going back and forth to Move headquarters in Philadelphia. We lived in New Jersey, and we were over in Philly pretty much every single day. This is former MOVE supporter Bob Massey. We would leave our house at different times every day and drive a different route to get to headquarters every day because there was a lot of paranoia, a lot of tension, a lot of anxiety. Where were you getting that kind of information or like sense of the police? You shouldn't let people follow you. Where was that coming from? I was coming from MOVE. I don't remember anybody who wasn't espousing that viewpoint. Everybody was on board with how dangerous the situation was. When you're a member of MOVE, you expect meetings. And when things are tense, Kevin Price says there's a lot of meetings. So at the time, there were some meetings that were like half MOVE members and half supporters and sympathizers. And then I'm sure the people at King Sessing were having like a million meetings about strategy by themselves where supporters weren't welcome. And then sometimes there would be meetings that were just supporters and sympathizers that even though a lot of times people who were more in the inner circle like myself were getting directives on how to steer things from Maria, it would create the illusion that all of these supporters and sympathizers were taking all of these actions without it being led by MOVE, which gave like MOVE the ability to say, hey, that's not us, that's, oh, we can't control what our supporters do, that kind of thing. And that strategy had been used 
before with various demonstrations and things like that when no move members would be there just so there's some kind of plausible deniability or it makes it seem like there's more autonomy that the supporters have that it's a separate thing when in reality it was always top down. On Wednesday, September 25th, 2002, Rhea announces that a move meeting will be held on Thursday night. Rhea asked our house to host a supporter sympathizers meeting. This move meeting has never been reported in news stories, and detectives assigned to the murder of John Gilbride only knew that a move meeting happened on the night John was murdered, but nothing more than that. For the very first time, you will hear what happened at that move meeting from four people who were there, former white move supporters who were all between the ages of 19 and 26 at the time, Kevin Price, Tony and Lori Allen, and Bob Massey. Lori Allen remembers how everybody found out about the meeting. Once we knew there'd be a meeting, it was a very quick and efficient method that everybody was just in the know very, like right away. We, we called each other. Everybody knew when to meet. And we'd even talk about who was going to bring food. And we had a lot of meetings back then. And that one didn't seem any different than any other. Kevin Price remembers who was at the meeting that night. Most of the people that were there, I would guess there were, I don't know, 16 to 20 people there. With the exclusion of two or three people from New York City, all of the other people there were from the Philadelphia area. Lori's husband, Tony, remembers that they had to do another move activity before heading over to the meeting at Gary's house that night. It was their turn to deliver food supplies to the move members barricaded inside of move headquarters in Philadelphia, which was in confrontation mode because of the custody battle with John. We had food to drop off, and we pulled up at the gate in front of the house. There was nobody out there. There was just a noticeable lack of anything going on out there, and we had to call on the phone, and it seemed like it took a while. Came outside eventually, grabbed the stuff, and, and took it in the house. Everything was peculiar about that day, and then we, we drove to New Jersey. I asked all four of these MOVE supporters if they could recall what the purpose of the meeting was that night. This is what Bob Massey remembers. Kind of tumultuous time, what was going on right then. There was, there was just a lot of activity. There was a lot of things that were happening. There were issues with the police. There was security concern. There were some people who were maybe not as closely around MOVE, but were still involved and maybe had questions about things that were going on. I think it was just an idea to get everybody together and, and try to put everybody on the same page and maybe answer some questions. What was this topic of the meeting? It was, it was the ongoing situation that John hadn't gone and picked up Zach yet. He was going to try again yeah. at some point that it was going to get court enforced. And so it was just about who was going to be available what days to go hang out front King Sessing and deal with the media. So it was like a planning meeting. Yeah. It wasn't anything intense. Let's all get together, eat, talk. And we didn't just meet. Okay, we're going to have a meeting. It'll be an hour we get home. It was a little bit social as well because we all needed a little bit of friendship during that time. It was stressful and scary. And whether we wanted to admit it or not, we were worried. This is a MOVE meeting sanctioned by MOVE leader Alberta and arranged by Rhea. Like Ramona was there, Alberta was there, Mike Jr. was there. Was it a- no, none of the, no, none of them were there. That's the thing. Is this meeting happened at one Carrie Wonderland's house all the way out in New Jersey. 
and none of the people in MOVE, none of the big leaders or anybody like it was just MOVE supporters. In fact, no Africa's official MOVE members are at this meeting. Looking around at the meeting, this is all Tony could think about. Typically with MOVE, when we're having meetings, it's a very top-down hierarchical structure. So they are letting us know what's going to happen. We aren't sitting around kicking ideas back and forth. That is not how things went. Even the kind of tone of this meeting, to me, and I had been around for a while, that type of meeting was fairly abnormal. Everything about it, the timing, was just completely odd. At this point, it has been weeks that all MOVE supporters have been given confrontation activities, security, flyering, surveillance. They've been on the highest alert and available 24-7 to MOVE. Tonight, they're all sent over the Ben Franklin Bridge to New Jersey to have this meeting by themselves at Gary Wonderland's house. Gary Wonderland was there, seemingly kind of in and out, floating around. I don't remember him really being a part of the meeting. It was just at his house. And I'm hoping somebody can speak to what the the, the meeting was even about, because I don't even remember that. I just remember being something that, to me, seemed completely unimportant relative to everything that was going on around us. I took Tony's question and I posed it to Kevin. It's really hard to remember because all of those meetings, as far as the conversations and the strategy... They blend together in so many ways. I can remember a lot of the people that were there because there were some people who were not like super close who weren't at all of those things. But as far as what strategy we were discussing, I honestly don't remember. I know there was supposed to be an upcoming court date sometime within the next week. Is that true? Yes. With Alberta violating court orders... There was going to be a hearing in seven days on October 4th. Okay, so we were probably figuring out, or there was probably the illusion that we were figuring out what we were going to do, when in reality I had probably been given some sort of way that things should be steered so that consensus could be built around something that worked with what Bria and probably Alberta wanted us to do. But my memories of that meeting are like, an outline like I can remember that it happened I can remember that it went pretty late because I remember being really tired by the end of it I was just tired all the time then we were just doing so much around the custody case Kevin Price remembers the meeting going until about 10 30 or 11 p.m. Bob Massey thinks it ran about that long too some people I think left at different times I do remember that Lori and Tony were the first ones who left They had their little girl then, right? They did. And that's a reasonable reason to go home early and not be out all day. They had a long drive, too. They were in, what, it might have been 45 minutes away, maybe. Both Tony and Lori remember that they were the first ones to leave that night. But Lori isn't exactly sure what time it was. Maybe between 9.30 and 10? I know it was getting late but I don't remember exactly what time. I just know it was definitely dark out. And like I said, it sunsets much later in September. It's like still 8 o'clock or so before it starts to get dark. So it had to have been at least 9 or later. I just couldn't tell you for sure because that's a long time ago. We just wanted to go home. We had our baby. She was really young. And I remember going to leave 
and looking to say goodbye to Gary and not seeing him and not seeing his car there. Gary's house is only 1,300 square feet. The first floor where the meeting is happening is half of that, so it seems unlikely that Gary could be there and Tony doesn't see him. I ask Lori, Kevin, and Bob Massey, and all of them assume that Gary was there all night at the meeting, but they can't say definitively. Now, Tony also remembers Gary's car being gone, and that could have been true even with Gary being in the house. According to Kevin, when you're in Move, you give copies of all of your keys, house and car, to Move. Could somebody have come to Gary's house and taken his car? I mean, it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility. I Like, I... Huh. It wouldn't surprise me if Gary had given keys to his car to Carlos and other people. Um, because that's the type... Gary is the... He is literally the type of person that, that would give you the shirt off of his back. What was Gary driving at that time? I am... Almost 100% certain he was driving a Sandy Tan Ford Taurus. That's the vehicle that he had when I moved up here. More than 150 miles away, Alicia Gilbride is at her parents' house watching the television show ER when the house phone rings. It's John calling from work to talk to his parents. And he always called to talk to them on his way home. My parents typically talk to him till he got into his apartment door and shut the door. And why was that? Just for his safety. Typically, he would get up around 11 o'clock. But this time, he told me, I'm leaving early tonight. I said, okay, do you want me to wake them up? He said, no, I'll talk to you. So we were talking. And he was telling me about um, he was going to be going to court. The following Friday, October 4th, John is taking Alberta to family court for violating the custody orders. He's going to ask the court to issue a bench warrant for her arrest if she doesn't show up with Zachary. And John is planning on breaking his silence and telling his story to the local press. And we were just talking about, you know, court, blah, 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 how the, you know, family court was or whatever. Like just something, you know, crazy. And then he said, all right, well, I got to go and finish up whatever he does to leave work. And then we said, okay, goodbye. I love you. And then we hung up. John finishes up his work shift at USAIR a little early, around 1045 p.m., he and the coworker friend he's been staying with for the past few nights take the eight-minute shuttle to the employee parking lot. It's now a little past 11. They get in the coworker's car and drive to John's car. 11.15 p.m., they both leave the parking lot, but tonight, John is not following his friend home. John is headed to his apartment at Ryan's Run in Mapleshade, New Jersey, 21 miles away over the Betsy Ross Bridge. The route will take John right by Cherry Hill, where he once lived with Alberta and Zach. Sometime after 11.30 p.m., John takes a left turn into Ryan's Run and proceeds to the right, making his way back to his building, located at the back of the property. There's a parking spot right in front of the building, so he pulls in. John has just put his car in park when he sees someone come out from the darkness with a gun. 34-year-old John Gilbride has just been shot, 4.6 miles from where the MOVE supporter meeting just finished up at Gary Wonderland's house. A 911 call is made to Mapleshade Police. When officers arrive on the scene, they see a 1985 two-door dark blue Crown Victoria with its engine running, the headlights on, the music blaring, and in the driver's seat, John Gilbride covered in blood. At 12.08 a.m. September 27, 2002, John Gilbride is pronounced dead. He's been murdered. But by who and why? Coming up on Murder at Ryan's Run. 
when I told my wife, she screamed, you wouldn't believe, and you just fell to the floor. Mike came up and told us, John is dead, John is dead, come downstairs. Mario, you got to hurry up and come down here. I'm like, what's going on? Where's Carlos? He's like, don't worry about that. John's dead. I don't want to be talking about this on the phone. They just kept saying, long live John Africa. They, they showed a, a receipt that said they were going over the bridge at the same time that he was supposed to be getting killed. If you are finding our podcast informational, I would appreciate it if you would rate, review, and share. Also, if you would follow us on social media where you will find bonus content as well as investigative and podcast updates. Thanks for listening. The producers wish to stress that all individuals referenced in this podcast series are presumed innocent unless or until they are proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law in the United States of America.